You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step-by-step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves if we let them. For this episode, I spoke to Andy West. Andy has taught philosophy in prisons since 2015. He holds a BA in philosophy from the University of London and has written for 3AM, The Guardian, The Times Education Supplement, The Millions, and more. His first book, The Life Inside, a memoir of prison, family, and learning to be free, is out now and available in all good bookshops. When we spoke, Andy and I discussed what might have happened if his father, who was incarcerated when Andy was 12, had in fact not gone to prison and stayed in his life throughout his teenage years. Along the way, we discussed what it means to break intergenerational cycles, the fine line between our lives and those of others, male friendship, and a little something called positive catastrophizing. Hi, Andy. Hello. Thank you very much for joining me on My Unlived Life. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I think that we have a really interesting conversation coming up, um, and it pulls or it ties in really nicely with your memoir, The Life Inside, um, which I'm going to make you talk about in a little bit, and also I'm going to make you read from a little bit, um, because it's such a unique and intricately woven story, which details you teaching philosophy in prison, intertwined with your own life and growth, and I think your own sort of internal evolution, which is really beautifully done. Um, And these conversations that you have when you're teaching, they deal with the sort of fundamental questions, I think, of what it means really to be human, right? It deals with free will, with autonomy, with freedom of choice. And there's this brilliant um, section, not quite at the, well, pretty close to the beginning, where you're discussing Odysseus and the sirens in your lessons. And um, the prisoners just bring this unbelievable perspective to this question of whether Odysseus, who's strapped to the mast so he doesn't sort of dive to his doom, um, is free, right? And this question of does removal of choice make us more or less free is just such an interesting one. And I love that that's sort of one of the ways in which you open the book. Um, in part because in this podcast, obviously, we deal with choice, not so much the um, sort of Odysseus jumping to his doom level of choice, but, you know, these sort of what if questions, if I had done this, if I had done that, um, if such and such had happened, etc. And um, your path today sort of does that, but sort of doesn't. And I think it's going to be really interesting to dive into. So we're going to get into that. But first, um, I think you're going to read a little passage from The Life Inside and then just I'm going to make you talk a little bit about it because it is really phenomenal. Thank you. So this is from the the very opening lines, the first page. The man standing next to me inside the lift looks uncannily like my father, who I have not seen for 20 years, 
since he was sent to prison. He is short, has yellowed fingertips, and the sleeves of his oversized suit jacket brush his knuckles. I have seen men who look like my father before, while I was on buses and trains, or standing at urinals in pub toilets. I've seen them in London, Manchester, Berlin and Rio. In the lift, I glance at him and I recognise the permanently clenched jaw, the emphysemic wheeze in the breathing. I pull my shirt sleeve over my wrist to conceal my watch and ask him for the time. He doesn't answer in a Scouse accent and therefore he is not my dad. Neither were the men in Germany or Brazil. We travel up another five floors in silence. The lift stops, the doors open, and he exits. Tomorrow morning, I'll be going into a prison for the first time. I'll be teaching philosophy to men. It really does frame... Well, it frames the book beautifully. It frames so much of what we're going to talk about beautifully because we are going to discuss your father and why that's so relevant. Um, can you just say a little bit of something about the book overall? Yeah, so as is kind of hinted at in that passage, the, there's a point of departure here from childhood, which is my dad going to prison, which, and then we see m me going into prison, having, you know, conversations with often men inside about some of the biggest questions in life, questions about freedom, time, power, hope, forgiveness... Uh, justice and I suppose for me part of part of my interest in those questions part of the reasons that I became kind of philosophical in my thinking was perhaps because of uh, those experiences growing up it wasn't just my dad that was in prison also my brother and uh, my uncle um, on my mother's side were in and out of prison a lot and I, th I suppose one thing it did for me was it it created a kind of questioning a kind of I, I think if you're if you're living amongst if if the people who are familiar to you are the people that society deems sort of bad or monstrous uh you you have to sort of either question them or even question your family or question society and I guess I ended up sort of doing both uh, in equal measures so a lot of the reasons I'm interested in justice time power hope forgiveness is is because of that formative background so in the book, you know, one thing I'm doing is uh, weaving those 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 personal stories about, you know, meeting my brother outside the prison gates after he gets out, or my dad going away, or listening to my uncle tell stories about his time in a prison that I'm teaching in with these conversations I'm having with people inside. It's so beautifully done, and I think it really interest, uh, illustrates something that you touch on multiple points in the book, which is also just the, the really thin line between our existence or, or even the sort of thin line between your fate and somebody else's fate, my fate and somebody else's fate, right? That idea that something could tip, you know, there's a, it's not that much of a difference between um, a life inside and a life outside in that sense. Yes, which, which is um, so in keeping with the the spirit of this idea that you're exploring here on this podcast, this sense of what if, which as a, as a philosopher I'm really interested in because philosophy is all about engaging with hypothetical possibilities or possible worlds and, and seeing where they take us and seeing what they show us about 
our life here in this actual world. But also, you know, I, I sort of had that that sense very early on in life that each of us could have been anybody else. And and that, you know, my, my brother going to prison about 12 times in total and, and you know, me only going to prison with a keychain on my belt, it was an ever-present sensation I had just how contingent life is and just how each of us could have been somebody else, could have been the person next to us, could have been someone we think of as very different to us. So I'm really excited to see where we go today. Well, in that case, I think that we should just dive straight in. So um, we have a path for you, and I would appreciate it if you would just give a little context, please. So how old are you? What's your life been like? We're going in around the time when you're about 12, correct? That's right. So if you could just give a little bit of a run-up for us. What was what was your young life like, um, and what brings you to this particular moment? Um, so my, my parents broke up when I was about seven, and I continued to see my dad occasionally at weekends and things like that, and in school holidays. And then when I was about 12, I mean, our relationship was in a quite strange place. Then I got a letter from him saying he, he was looking at some, doing some jail time, which he'd done previously in his life as well. And I suppose I used that as a sort of uh, opportunity to escape and separate and disentangle myself from him. And while he didn't like that at first, it was sort of easy to maintain that boundary with him being away. And that's what I did. And so, you know, my life took a very particular route uh, uh, at that point. And had he not gone to prison and still been present, you know, during my teen years, uh, until who knows when, I think things would have been very different for me. And, and you know, we spoke about what sort of um, path, what, what choice point we'd discuss. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to discuss that one was because I don't know what the answer is to it. And, and it sort of speaks to, you know, the big mystery that's in all of our lives of why did we turn out to be the way we are. I remember when the book came out, there was, um, I was doing an event and uh, someone in the audience said, how come you didn't, you know, repeat the cycle and, and turn out like your father? And I said, well, one of the ironies is that I think him going to prison, you know, while that was its own painful, difficult experience, it also offered some protection and, and, and some way in which I could become my own person and, and get out from under him. And then the, the person in the audience said, but how come you didn't think, well, I want to be like my dad, I want to be a bad boy as well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow that path. And, and I suppose, I don't know, you know, I don't know why some people have that personality and others don't, or, you know, I can, I can try and explain it in terms of sort of some social or material condition, but it's not exhaustive, it's not, it doesn't... Um, prove anything so what you assume happens is if you have a lot of family who go down that route then that's almost what you think is meant for you and you kind of it's that classic thing of if you can't see another option it's quite difficult to choose another path for yourself yeah but what's okay so what I would love is obviously you're speaking about two things one is that you're speaking about the sort of relief that came when you got this distance from your dad and the space it created. Can you just say a little bit more, and you describe it so beautifully in the book, just what did you need distance from? What was he like and what was sort of life like? Um, I, you know, he was aggressive. He, after separating from my mother, um, 
he would often move around a lot, you know, being in one place for a very short period of time and then needing to move on because of debts or enemies. Uh, we'd always have to sort of use a new name whenever we went somewhere new. There was a, you know, I, I couldn't really see all the details as a child, but there was a sort of fugitive existence there that was quite, I suppose, fright, frightening uh, as a child. And, you know, he'd drink a lot and get very aggressive and... Uh, you know, have a job for a few weeks and then lose it because he'd stolen money from someone or something. Or So th- I suppose there's always just this sense of possible calamity around him and not just a sort of, um, you know, not the sort of adorable kind <laughs> that, that something could, uh, you know, a mistake could be made or some accident or misunderstanding. It was often, you know, things could escalate and get very tense and 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 angry and violent. So... Yeah, that was the sort of atmosphere uh, I was in. And it was quite sort of, you know, I spent a lot of time sort of biting my nails, I suppose, mm-hmm. around him. And what was your, I mean, obviously we're thinking about sort of this question of, of why didn't you end up that way, et cetera. I imagine your, you describe your mother, she sounds like quite an anchoring force, presumably. Yeah, I mean, um, I had a good relationship with my mother, which was great. Yeah, she was living with her new partner, my stepfather, who, you know, offered some stability there. So whether or not that explains sure. <laughs> the difference, I don't know. But it but it was one factor within the picture, yeah. Okay. Um, okay, well, I want us to get into your path. The final thing before then, um, which I just am curious, particularly curious to see if this lingers as we go into your path is one thing that you describe really well which is this idea of sort of guilt by association or inherited guilt which is like despite the fact that you weren't doing anything wrong as a child you felt somehow guilty and it's you describe sort of carrying that with you this just sort of question around sort of have I done something wrong have I done something wrong and it's something I think I would imagine I, I feel like I could relate to in a sort of basic sense just that that kind of question of sort of you know, you send the email and it's, have I offended the person? Or it's, you know, or, but yeah, it's, it's it's so minor compared to, you know, you sort of have this scene where you sort of, you walk into the prison and you just panic for a second that you have heroin in your bag. Like, no, of course you don't have heroin in your bag, but you just kind of wonder, maybe I do, maybe I'm the person with heroin in my bag. Yeah, so that was just one thing that I found really fascinating, that guilt by association. Yeah, I think it's the kind of inherited shame, a sort of sins of the father mm. burden, um, which of course isn't isn't rational, or at least unless you're living in a kind of honour culture <laughs> um, from yesterday, isn't really rational. Yeah, I call it a sort of... Um, it, it was like sort of having a sort of executioner in my head, this idea that you've done something wrong. You're not really sure what, but that doesn't lessen the feeling of guilt. You know, the details of your crime are just sort of... will come later, that, or, or you're you're about to commit it, or something like that, so... You know, at times, it's been a very stifling uh, sense of shame and I suppose a feeling of sort of fate that, you know, this is where you're headed to, that it's sort of too late for you already. It's a a strange thing, you know. I mean, these days I'm pretty cheerful, I have to say. I don't have too many ruminations or intrusive thoughts about having done something wrong. I I do feel perhaps as free as I ever have, but um, that thing that... And this is a what if for you, in fact. You know, if we don't have that sins of the father thing, it it may seem redundant to us and it may seem that your family doesn't determine your future and and everything, but that's a very new sensibility. 
I remember going to Indonesia about 10 years ago, traveling around Java and making some friends there in Jakarta and who are Indonesian. And they will quite candidly ask you like about your status and, and what your father does for a living and things like that. And I would say, well, my father was in prison the last time I heard. And, you know, if I talked more about history of having siblings and uncles in prison, it, it was they the people I was speaking to, they just couldn't really understand how, if that's your background, how come you're someone who can get on a plane and go and visit another country? Mm. And, and you know, how come you're not in prison too? And uh, I, I suppose in a culture like that, where um, there's less of a welfare state, where your family really is your sense of social security, really is your identity, I would be, someone like me would be much less likely to exist. And that's a really powerful what if, you know, what if everything was the same, but I was living in a different time or culture where it wouldn't have been so easy to break the cycle, actually. And so and so I suppose, you know, without that, I, I, I suppose one thing that's going on with that sense of inheritance in the inherited shame and, and this kind of received sins of the father is there's something familiar and traditional about it. And the, the feeling I had coming away from those conversations in Indonesia were much more... Actually, I'm, I'm sort of in, in, in a time where this experience, where you can break the cycle, etc., is quite new, and, and it feels a little bit like a sort of frontier uh, of sorts. And, and maybe part of my anxiety, part of the shame, is the anxiety of being at that frontier a little bit. I don't know. I think that makes complete sense. I mean, fundamentally, we kind of crave the comfort of the familiar, don't we? Right. As humans, as human creatures. Right. And so I think that breaking, breaking free of a, I mean, the thing about a cycle, whether or not it's a destructive cycle, whether or not it's a painful cycle, all of those sorts of things, as you say, it's what we know. Um, and emerging from that, even if it's better, even if it's healthier, even if it's definitely for your well being, Yeah. I think, I think it's almost like, you know, breaking free from a sort of, desperately painful and uncomfortable blanket, but it's still a blanket nonetheless, right? It's still something that contains you. It's still something that holds you. And that's what, I mean, when you go back to sort of early attachment theory and all that sort of stuff, right? It's like, that's what we need. We need containers, right? When we're babies, we need to be contained. Um, And I think, you know, trauma can contain you just as much as something healthier can contain you. Yes. But in a way that doesn't necessarily make your life any better but that's kind of what we crave and so it is it's quite and that's why the breaking of the cycle is a it, it's a break it's a disruptive thing it's a sometimes violent thing it's a it's yes. a hard thing yes it reminds me of that christopher hitchens line when he he's saying that um conservatives think that they're protecting what we hold most dear but actually they're just protecting what we hold most often Ooh, and yeah. and um there is something in that you know that narrative of family honor family shame is is there and and it's there because it has been there yeah that's fascinating okay well so we're going to do a kind of interesting one we're going to we're not going to change who your father was because we can't but we are going to imagine what might have happened if at that moment when you're 12 when you get that letter um saying that he's going to prison we're just going to imagine that doesn't happen and we're going to, because as you say, you describe it as a release, you describe it as a moment that made some space for you so that you can then go forth and hopefully we'll get to talking about you at this amazing philosophy professor in secondary school and all of that and these sort of formative moments. Um, 
but we're going to talk about if that hadn't happened um, and what that might look like. So you're saying that normally you would have, what, every other weekend with him or the occasional weekend with him when he was free and available? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I I travel to wherever he was staying. That could be a bed and breakfast. It could be a bed sit. It could be a, a trailer. You know, he was moving around a lot. Yeah. And I mean, I, I suppose the sort of succinct way of putting this is because I was 12 when we ended contact, I think I'd only just turned 12 or was just about to turn 12. You know, I was still a child and I wasn't yet a teenager. I I had, uh, I, I, and I think if, if I had stayed with him when I was a teenager, then it could have been much more formative in, in a negative way. And I think if you've got that kind of male, quite domineering uh, aggression, and you're a young man yourself, you, the ways of dealing with that are either to get smaller and, you know, keep your head down and try and avoid and try not to be sort of involved um, or to get bigger and, you know, assert your status in that situation. And I think that was the sort of dilemma I was saved from mm. in a way. Um, because at working in prison, of course, I meet people who were faced with that dilemma and have gone either way with it. You know, I meet people who are filling their arm with heroin and trying to escape, trying to numb out, trying to sort of reduce their size in the world in that way. Or I meet people who've got bigger and prove that they're the big man and uh, that they're in charge and nobody tells them what to do. And, you know, I, I sort of... I, I consider the difference between me and them to be largely uh, luck and circumstance, actually, that, you know, teenage years are difficult f enough, but if you're growing up around violence, then uh, it's, you know, when, when your body is suddenly starting to charge with testosterone and things like that, and you're, you're getting bigger and stronger, I, I think that is a very um, testing moral challenge. All right, so you're, um, you're 12... You are in secondary school. You described describe what you were like as a student. That's right around this time. Oh, trying not to get found out. I think <laughs> I. I mean, I left school with two GCSEs. I scraped a C in maths and English. I mean, you know, my my predicted grades weren't great anyway, as you'll probably guess from my sort of background. But you know, I if if there was an opportunity to take the piss or whatever, then I could have a good time at school. Otherwise, it was just a sort of escape from being at home. Uh, but it wasn't a thing in itself. It wasn't It wasn't a... Uh, I wasn't interested in school, uh, not until I was 17, really. Um, but at the time, yeah, I was sort of there for laughs. Yeah. All right, fine. So you're there for laughs. And from the time that it's... From the time that your father goes away to prison, you're... You're at the very least not functioning with this sort of shadow over your head and this sort of anxiety and this sense of not funny calamity, right? And now we don't have that. So it's just another normal weekend. You're going to visit your dad at a B&B, &B and he's sort of still there, and he's still present in your life. How does it feel? Obviously, you don't know in this life. You don't know that he's not going to prison. You just know that it's another weekend going to him. So what did it feel like when you would go to his... And what does it feel like, let's say, in this weekend, just going 
to see him uh, again. I suppose tense. I suppose because because uh, because I would have been a child. There's that that feeling of so much is outside of your hands, right? That the things you don't like as a child you have to put up with, and if that's writing a Christmas card to your grandma, then okay, well maybe children should put up with that. But obviously there are more toxic forces around that I would have had to put up with and I suppose there's a kind of um you know a sinking feeling that comes with that a kind of a sort of hopelessness and there comes the choice I think of whether you get smaller and sort of just fade away or whether you get bigger I mean what do you think what do you think would have happened well I mean it's funny like I think about moments where had I been a bit older or had I been sort of how I would have dealt with them. So once I remember um, any any situation where there was power available to him, he would exploit it as much as possible. So in, you know, going into a shop and talking to the assistant or being in a restaurant and ordering a meal, I remember once he asked for this steak well done in a restaurant. Um, when it arrived, uh, he, he put his hand on the back to feel the heat and he eyeballed the waiter and he said, that's not well done, send it back. And the waiter brought it back and he felt it again. Mm. He said, that's not well done. And he sent it back five times. Uh, and in the end, when he ate it, he said to the waiter, please tell the chef that was the best steak I ever had. Um, so, you know, that opportunity to exploit power, to to humiliate, to, to use your position, um, was really necessary for him. Clearly, he he, he was felt some kind of profound inferiority like the whole world was just about to insult him and he sort of had to get there first and you know I mean I don't know maybe I would have maybe I would have sort of parented him or something maybe I would have said oh there there you know you're just sort of fragile and sort of managed him and worked around this sort of man child or maybe I would have said, you know what, you're a real prick. You know, <laughs> like, it's like talking to the waiter like that, you know. Um, and of course, those are different paths as well, you know, oh. between kind of asserting yourself around someone like that and kind of accommodating them. Well, let's, why don't we think around it for a minute? So let's, you're kind of growing up. Why don't we give you a little growing up time? So you're 12, you're 13, you're entering puberty. Like, as you said earlier, like, it's a really difficult time anyway for anybody. You've still got this presence in your life. He's erratic. He's orders his steak five times in restaurants. He's doing all of these things. Let's, let's put you in school for a little bit and see how it's feeling in there, right? So you've still, you're getting older. You've still got this sort of sense of precariousness around you. Does it change anything about the way that you function in school? You've still got violence. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's a really good question. Does your sort of way of being in the world change at all? Again, going back to this sort of, you know, do you become small or do you become big in a way to, as a way of dealing with it? Or do you not? Or do you just try to pretend it isn't happening? I, I think... I think... Um, I mean, yeah, I think becoming smaller or perhaps another image is like all the colours kind of becoming desaturated or something, that it would have been a sort of grey 
it, it would have been difficult and I would have sort of become a bit sort of grey with that. That when I was when I was around my father, I was never um, relaxed. I was never playful. I was never free. You know, he, he came home. I stopped talking. I, you know, stopped what I was doing. I moved out of the way. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, protracted presence of him in my life. I, I think, yeah, I, I don't know if I would have had the same access to imagination or humour or something, which, you know, today as a writer is so important to me. And as we were talking about earlier, I, I feel like just that ability to imagine yourself out of your current existence and into something that looks yeah. a bit more expansive. Yes. I, I don't, my sense is I, I, and this could be, I have a limited moral imagination, but I don't think I would have become violent. Okay. I think, I think there was part of me that was trying to resist repeating the cycle and him going away was like a huge booster in doing that but uh him not being there I would have been as keen to to sort of resist those forces and those influences and you know really not want this sort of osmosis from him you know really wanted to maintain a boundary but I think that would have meant living in a state of tension and closeness like the 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 soul would have to close a little bit Mm. um and and one thing I was afforded by him going away was just a bit more openness, you know, uh, open mind, open heart. Uh, as a, as a that was more of a possibility to me, I think. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, so the the defenses kind of stay up, basically, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I I see it in prison. You know, we send people to prison in the hope that they'll change and grow morally, but actually, it's such a survivalist uh, thing to situation to be confronted with being in prison you know just in terms of I mean just the diet you know that's two two pounds and two pence a day uh the allowance for food in prison that the food is awful you know just just literally keeping your body alive is is a sort of worry you know nutritionally speaking like is this going to be okay can I do this for three months or three years or 30 years or whatever um but also you know the, the the violence the overcrowdedness the the lack of green space, you know, all the things that that make a human able to grow and rethink who they are and transform aren't really available in prison. And so I, I, I think that's the thing about violence and aggression and both both in that prison setting and, and in my childhood is it's it doesn't, you know, the chances are it's it's constrictive that you that you need to protect yourself from the world not open yourself up to it that so we've got this sort of growing teenager presumably also getting taller getting bigger all of the things and i mean one of the things you describe about school is obviously so the the good thing was if you could take the piss out of somebody or if you could you know if you could make jokes or whatever this uh, that you don't now sound like somebody who that happens for you sound sadder and like joking around doesn't sort of fit or what do you think yeah, or is that, is that maybe, still you well maybe it would have been a bit more malicious or something okay. <laughs> you know maybe I would have had a bit more of an edge I would have been carrying more resentment or um, okay 
or pain or something, you know, sort of, you know, high school's a great setting to bully people, isn't it? So, yeah. so maybe that would have been uh, more of a thing for me. Okay. Um, so less sort of prankster and more bully, potentially. Yeah. Sorry that we're making you into a bad person, <laughs> but it's really temporary and you get to come out of this and be nice again, I promise. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, I mean, I mean, on that, that point about, um, you know, how the path I, my actual path was one that allowed for a bit more emotional freedom and, mm. and mental kind of freedom, imagination, playfulness. You know, the, I suppose there was a point when I was 17 and I, I met this great philosophy teacher where those two things were still a little bit in conflict with each other, the sort of the, the boundaries I wanted to keep with the world and, and the sense of wanting to be open to life and exploring it and, and you know, getting something from it. You know, I remember um, I really connected with this philosophy teacher when I was 17 who went the extra mile or the extra 100 miles in my case uh, to sort of get me through. And uh, being alone in a room with a man was... It wasn't... I wasn't alarmed or anything, but I was nervous and I was not really sure I could trust him. Or, or that he was who he said he was, for example. I mean, this is one thing. My, my dad was not who he said he was. My dad was always changing his name. My dad was, I suppose, a con man for a lot of his life, involved in fraud and things like that. Um, someone who seemed sort of charming but could become very aggressive. Uh, so there were, there were these moments where, actually, one thing I really benefited from in my education was having a, a positive relationship with, a, with an, uh, an older male teacher. Uh, but there was also this sense of danger there, I suppose, which, you know, thankfully has turned out to be completely unfounded. But, you know, had I been a bit more sort of hardened, you know, by continuing that relationship with my dad, I don't know. I don't know if I would be able to be that open. Well, let's think about it. What do you think? So your teacher comes along, this guy comes along. He sounds amazing. He clearly was... My guess would be, was he the sort of stepping stone for you then to go to university? Yeah, and like... yeah exactly. Yeah, he told me what a university was and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and you know, gave me some direction with it and a lot of support. So Amazing. Um, okay, so he comes along, but you're, you're a little more guarded now. So as opposed to that, that sort of guardedness being something that's potentially malleable, it's probably a little bit more entrenched because... By the time you're 17, it's another five years of still having your dad in your life. What yeah. do you think your dad is up to when you're 17? Assuming he hasn't gone back oh, to prison. Um, We're going to assume he hasn't gone back. Somehow he's skirted prison for the last yes. five years. Yes. I guess just... this. I mean, he, he seemed to be stuck in a pattern of fresh starts. Moving somewhere new. You know, buying a new suit using a new name, it all blows up, uh, getting a new girlfriend, um, telling them that he's 10 years younger than he actually is. Um, yeah, you know, I just sort of see him as caught in a cycle of, um, I can, uh, just, just being able to become someone new instead of being accountable for what he's done. It's interesting when you think about that compared to what we were talking about earlier in terms of that sort of inherited 
family trauma or that sort of being sort of defined by who you are and being defined by your family and what it means to kind of in a healthy way break free and be new and be right. fresh and new versus the kind of fresh start that's a new yeah. suit and a new girlfriend. I mean, he was trying to break the cycle too, I guess, yeah. but he was sort of doing it by means of another cycle. <laughs> it's, an, it's an interesting impulse. It's clearly in both of you, but, you know. Um, okay, so he's still doing that over and over and again. You're seeing him semi-regularly. You've become a bit of a bully. You're a meanie, but, like, not not a violent one, but you're just a bit of a meanie. Um, philosophy teacher comes into your life. Does he manage to break through? I think just living with a certain amount of suspicion could have really stopped me from giving Robert, uh, the teacher, uh, a chance to help me, maybe. I also think there's another version of this story which is not as uh, catastrophic, which is that maybe it's through people like Robert that I can sort of... and, and, and through how that relationship helped me grow, that I can sort of may have been able to look at my dad and instead of me getting bigger or smaller, somehow he got smaller. Mm. That there was some way of... Um, that I would have got on with my life. And as it is, I stopped seeing him when I was 12 and he went to prison and, you know, prison has this sort of aura and mythos and great power to it. And my, you know, therefore my memory of him is quite big and powerful and... You know, I was 12 the last time I saw him. He was a lot bigger than me. He had a lot more, more power than me. I wonder, actually, if I'd reached adulthood, staying in contact with him. Mm. I wonder, actually, if he would have just revealed... It would have been a sort of Wizard of Oz <laughs> moment, really, where you you just sort of realise, actually, this sort of blustering, uh, aggressive... Uh, sort of tyrannical man in the house is actually just a sort of small grey man behind a curtain and yeah and and maybe that maybe I would have just moved on that way instead you know that's quite fascinating because so what we're looking at is essentially in your lived life you do manage to as we say break the cycle Robert gets through you go to university you sort of follow the path that you know should lead you and does lead you into a good place but you're saying you've still got this sort of outsized image of your father in your head and that kind of accompanies you into your life yeah yeah I mean maybe we all do maybe you know people who have had perfectly normal uh healthy relationships with their father all through their life you know maybe they still Maybe there's just something about that archetype and that figure, which is always, you know, if you believe the psychoanalysts will tell you that that's just always big and formative and, and powerful. But maybe maybe what I would have had the chance to do is sort of reality test it a bit and, and would have seen this quite, um, you know, pitiful, petulant... Man, that's not to say he was harmless or toothless and and couldn't do real damage. But but maybe that fear I had around him would have been replaced by a pity or it just would have been neutered in some way. Mm. Potentially almost empathy. Yes. It might be yeah, a long maybe. road to that, but... Yeah. I think there is space for 
relationships to evolve in a way that allows us to see each other much more clearly, yes. even even with the hierarchy of parent and child. Right. It requires a lot of health and probably a lot of therapy. That glimpse of the real human just yeah. outside of all the projection yeah. and, and things like that. I wouldn't say I understand my father now that I'm in my... I'm 37 now and mm. I can remember him being about 40. So I'm sort of approaching that age to which I can remember him being. Um, it's not that I sort of think oh yeah I sort of get it now but what but what I do feel is um a lot of gratitude for the, the difference in opportunity we had so I um, mm. you, you talk about thera- therapy there I've seen a therapist for six years and you know turned my soul upside down and inside out several times round um and you know I'm you know he grew up uh, in a very poor part of Liverpool uh today I live in a milieu where you can a, a man can talk about his doubts and insecurities and fears and and not there's no there would be no loss of status for me in that you know there'd be no humiliation in that uh so so I am aware that as I approach the age I can remember him being that there are these other kind of what ifs <laughs> uh that go that go back in his direction and that I'm sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, like historically privileged or something, that just in terms of opportunities uh, I've had to to lead a different life to the one he had. I don't think that accounts for all the differences between us, but but it's a factor and it's it's something I don't forget, you know, it's it's something that's present for me. Mm. Um, Yeah. Well... Let's make a choice. Do you go the catastrophic route where you just completely blank out Robert and you kind of can't engage? Or is it this more sort of nuanced scenario where he manages to get through and it facilitates a bit of a a reduction in size of your dad and your psyche? I'd like to go nuanced. Let's go nuanced. Why am I not surprised that you want to go nuanced? Interesting. Um, And one of the reasons is there's, there's a project, I think it started in Oxford and it's sort of expanding at the moment for the the children of uh, people in prison because they tend to fall between um the police historically have said this has nothing to do with us it's a social work issue and social workers have said this has nothing to do with us it's a criminal justice issue so what you have is the sort of experience i had uh where you have a parent in prison or a close relative in prison and no one talks about it and uh it's probably having loads of repercussions for you and all the other kids are talking about it in the playground, uh, etc. Uh, but there's just no. It's a, it's an unidentified experience, and it's because it's unidentified. I suppose it can be more corrosive or painful or alienating. But th- there's a scheme recently to sort of address that and and to, and to deal with this kind of fallout. Unfortunately, one of the ways it's framed in the media is that we're stopping the children of criminals becoming criminals themselves. So so you've got this sort of, uh, you know, six, seven, eight-year-old kid who's, the message they're getting is, you might be a criminal as well. Mm. Don't worry, we're going to stop that. As we- opposed to let's deal with the grief and loss and confusion right. that you're experiencing. Right, rather than, uh, you know, safety and care, we're offering surveillance. Um, and, you know, that is the Joseph K story of you wake up one morning and two officials are standing at the end of the bed saying Mm. you're guilty don't ask why you just are um and so while i think it's a great scheme that the framing of it in that way 
is quite catastrophic and um and also like empirically there's it's still quite undecided as to whether having a parent in prison makes you more likely to end up in prison yourself there's some studies that have said yes but they were on very small sample sets um they were done a long time ago they were done in particular social groups um you know i've since i've released my book i've met a lot of people like me who grew up in the sort of uh situations i grew up in but have become real perfectionists at life or uh felt like they can never make a mistake actually and and they're not in prison but they perhaps have a pathology in the opposite direction um i include myself in that i was gonna say you talk about that in the book in terms of i mean just on a basic level in terms of things like you know not drinking not doing drugs like all of these things when you were younger that you just felt like you just couldn't do yeah yeah and and so you know i I suppose because i want there to be a positive message for for people who are having this experience and you know for the kids today who are still in touch with that parent uh even though it that relationship might be harmful to them in many ways. Um, let's go with the, the nuanced uh, okay. outcome. Yeah. All right. Okay. Nuanced it is. Um, in which case, uh, that means so in real life, you finished secondary, and where did you study? Where did you go to university? Did you go straight? Uh, I yeah, I I took a year out, and then I went to university. When I was about twenty uh, in London. Yeah, okay. University of London. Yeah. All right. Cool. And that was, you really put that down to sort of, Robert sort of told you what it was. There, there was a few the, factors. Sure. I mean, if he were here now, he'd say, you know, that's the fallacy of the single cause. You know, that would be his sort of philosopher's <laughs> interpretation that, uh, you know, there are diffuse uh, explanations for uh, events and, uh, you know, he would be right, um, <laughs> but but he was you know certainly one of the big uh, factors. Yes. All right. Fine. And anyways, we haven't gone the catastrophic route, so no matter what, I think so. Well, let's assume that you uh, still a little hardened, still a little defensive, but with this um, smaller dad in your brain, which feels significant. So because presumably when you went to university, you've still got an overarching sort of dominating father figure in your psyche. And what was, what, how did that play out? Obviously we've talked about the sort of inherited guilt question. Can you describe in any other way? Sort of what did that feel like? What did life feel like for you? University. Are we talking actual? Actual life before we can compare to your not actual life. I think it was an incredibly happy time. Uh, And I think one of the reasons it was a happy time was because I was doing something no one had done before in my family mm. including him and uh yeah i think there was a sense of it it was there to be relished and enjoyed as much as possible and and to uh to succeed was was really important so if you're going to go then you know do it do it well and i was very kind of dedicated i don't know if it would have been the same for me had i had you know, brothers and sisters who'd been to university or parents who'd been to university. Maybe it would, and I'm sure it would have been its own great experience, but there was a there was a particular quality to the experience which was it it was part of uh crafting myself as someone distinct from where I'd come from. Mm. Uh it, it was part of uh a sort of 
a project of self-determination in some way. So, so it was a time when I felt perhaps more free. It, it was a time when, you know, we're not Joseph K anymore. We're sort of, we're, we're deciding not to go to the trial. We're going to go, we're going to go to university instead. You brought up um, this question of if you'd had brothers or sisters who had gone, if that would have felt different. What we haven't talked at all about is your brother. Sure. Who obviously features in the book and, as you said earlier, has been in and out of prison many times. Um, so at this moment when you're at university, maybe it's useful to touch on. So where, did, where was he when you were in university, in and out? Um, so he was... Um in the throes of a heroin addiction, really, uh, and was in prison a lot, just sort of, you know, shoplifting or unpaid fines or I don't think you could be arrested for vagrancy um, during that period, but something close to it, some kind of homelessness or something. Um, so it was sort of death by a thousand cuts with him. It was like you're in for six weeks, you get out. You're in for eight weeks, you get out. You do six months. I think the most he did was 18 months in one go, but, you know... I'd meet him from the gates of the prison and then an hour later he'd be stopped and searched in town. Uh, so it was, it was sort of lots of little sentences put together um, and it, I suppose it was just part of the, the life he was living where, uh, you know, if things got really bad he could just go to prison and have a bed and three meals a day and yeah. get clean or cleaner. Anyway, <laughs> drugs are pretty available in prison. Mm. Um but, uh... So, you've gone to university. Still London, do you think? In this new, slightly marginally altered yes, existence? Yes, because, because I sort of wanted to... Um, I spent my teenage years in Worcester, and I, and I wanted to get away. And, uh, you know, my, my dad was from Liverpool, so London is also away. You know, it's geographically away, it's culturally away. Mm. Um, yeah. And all of that would have felt the same to you. Are you still a bully? So maybe it's not bullying as much as, uh, like, a deep-rooted cynicism and and scepticism about people. Okay. Uh, that people are sort of full of shit. And, and not bullying, but that very pointed way of pointing that out. Oh. And sort of uh, making sure everyone sort of knows the the uh, just just that way in which cynics do, you know, just that sort of prodding reminder that uh, things aren't as good as you think they are. I think that would be. I think it would have chipped away at me. In that, I think that would have been the message I would have wanted to pass on. Um, Makes so, you delightful at dinner parties. <laughs> So it's yeah. So it's not sort of it's not Love you know next to that guy. It's not quite stealing someone's lunch money. Okay. <laughs> but it's that sort of um that rolling of the eyes, that that refusing to um believe in anything, I think. Mm. Be- because because deception uh and was was so much a part of 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 it actually e- even more so than the violence, I think was the um the bullshit around it and that well that brings me to another question we haven't talked about at all which is just other relationships whether it's friendships or or romance or anything like that because um that makes you a tough guy to get along with 
a little bit. Yeah. So let's say, you know, so you've kind of gone to, you've gotten away, you've gone to university, um, which is good. So we haven't gone full catastrophe, but you're there now and you've got this quite hardened cynicism. Um, also presumably happiness and elation in that sense that, you know, you're somewhere new and you're remaking yourself. Do you think that's still there? That sense of the... Yeah. Um, or does that get kind of... I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I, think, I think one of the things in terms of relationships would be, you know, um, my friendships with men. Because mm. I think I, I've had flickers in my life of feeling sort of quite like a sort of splitting, you know, because I stayed with my mum and it was my dad that went away, almost a sort of a rejection of all things masculine, a sense that that's sort of inherently toxic or uh, domineering or harmful. And uh, I don't really believe that, but, you know, I'm capable of entering that headspace. And I, I suppose having my dad around more may have... may have deepened that. Hmm. You know, when I think about university, I think about a, f a few friendships I had that were just really sincere, actually. Very, very sincere. Uh, one friend I had, Paul, was just incredibly open and um, we could be really effusive with each other, you know, about stuff we liked and uh, passions we had and you know, music and film and books and all these kind of things. And, and London, like we're 20 and we're living in the city and it's great. And I wonder whether that would have felt a bit more tainted or something, a bit more off off limits, mm. uh, a bit more like I would have. Because if my dad was around more, I would just have to have more of a distance from him in all ways, even when he's not there. Just So I, I wonder if my relationships with men may have been... I would have thought them just a bit sort of corrupted or something, you know? Which is a shame, isn't it? I think on the whole, you know, men aren't very good at friendship. And, I mean, there's even sort of data to support this, isn't there, that, you know, especially sort of after retirement age, men just sort of tend to finish work and have no friends. <laughs> and women have a social network, and this is one of the explanations as to why they live Mm. longer than men apparently you know yeah i think it is it's literally a factor in how how <laughs> our late life goes is sort of all of our girlfriends yeah yeah um no i i feel i feel really lucky actually to have had the um i don't think it's i don't think it's something every man uh can say they've had mm. um in their life that kind of uh, very sincere friendship uh yeah, normally male friendship is negotiated with sort of banter or uh, a lot of humour, which, you know, is great fun too. But, you know, often there's maybe some anxiety there about protecting your heterosexuality or, you know, status games or, or whatever. Is there something about... I was just thinking about what you were talking about, about your dad earlier and him being sort of of an era where you know, to show, you know, vulnerability or anything would risk humiliation, you know, mm. you sort of couldn't. Is that a sort of hangover in that sense? Is it, because I think, I, I feel like possibly we're taught to be a little bit more vulnerable and open because we sort of, it's slightly baked into the 
the process a little bit more with women. I don't know if that's yeah. part of it. Because, I mean, it's required for really close friendship, right? Is that the ability to be very vulnerable, very open, to say yes. what you feel, show yourself at your worst, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's funny when we when we talk about... Uh, so, I mean, another what if is like the past or the future, isn't it? And And when I think about time in that way, like... Is it is it Brené Brown who does the yes vulnerability? like uh, <laughs> and, you know all this language we have about oh I had a vulnerability hangover the day <laughs> yeah. after you know I can't uh, I can't imagine an epoch in which both that exists and my father's way of being in the world <laughs> you know they don't belong in the same <laughs> like uh, period at all so um, if they were to sort of interact you'd have just sort of a mass explosion basically yeah sort of kind of yeah and, and that's when it does start to feel like you know it's been 25 years since I've seen him but it could have been 250 years you know when we start to think about how much our language has changed around um, how we express our inner world and our feelings and emotions and how mm. that's open to women but uh you know increasingly open to men as well yeah and I, you know social class has a lot to do with that as well i think in this case do you ever think about as you say it's been 25 years do you ever sort of imagine seeing him again or talking to him again or do you just not well I'm, i mean that reading from the book i sort of imagine that i have seen yeah. him like on the in the elevator or on the bus but um no i don't there's nothing uh unsaid between us that's not to say I've said everything to him and we've had an exhaustive conversation but there's nothing that needs to be said or something there's nothing I don't hold out some hope in communication and that we'll really understand each other or anything it's sort of I suppose I suppose he's a sort of artifact mm. uh, now rather than a, a person um does that feel different in this unlived life? Does he still feel like an artifact? No, he, we nuanced him. I, I a suppose bit. he's still around. I sort of, I sort of expect him to be messaging me, asking if he can borrow a hundred quid, mm. you know, just because he's got a job interview, or he just needs it for this rent, or uh, you know, and you know, I'm someone who keeps my phone on silent a lot as a, as a result. Um, yeah, that's he's he's still around, but he's sort of a mess, I think. Okay. Uh, he won't tell me he's a mess. You know, he'll say it's for some big project that he's got going or whatever. Uh, he won't say I'm fucked up. I fucked up. I'm sorry. Can I can I can I borrow fifty quid? He'll say, you know, I I need it to, for for the uh, for the new suit for the for the grand job for the the thing that's just about to take off. For the new con. <laughs> mm. You're in university. You're a. You've got. You've got your text messages coming in. You haven't quite muted them yet, but it, that feels like it might be coming. Um, you're you're a little cynical, um, a little maybe a little hard to get along with. Um, are you still studying the same thing? Do you think? You still go. Presumably, you studied philosophy. Yeah, I think so. Um... Yes, I'm argumentative still. Yeah. And philosophy's the place where you can be argumentative and not thrown out of the classroom for being so. Yeah. You can actually 
build a home in it. Okay, fine. So that's a good funnel. Does the cynicism stick, do you think, or does it get sort of exercised a bit in philosophy and so you you think it stays with you? No, I I actually think philosophy is quite dangerous for cynics because uh, you can sort of further arm yourself and fortify yourself with all of these new intellectual resources. Mm. So, yeah, maybe I become a bit sort of... uh, Maybe I'm a different kind of philosopher... Uh, maybe I'm a bit sort of exacting and argumentative and forceful in my position, perhaps. Okay. Uh, and and maybe it's a sort of uh, Hobbesian position, you know, like uh, life would be nasty, brutish, and short unless we uh, unless someone knows what they're doing and I know what I'm doing. You know, I'd, I'd sort of be a bit more less at the wonderment end and more at the sort of uh, argumentative end of philosophy, maybe. We talked right at the start about that that kind of thin line, right? Inside, outside, one person's life, another person's life. And what's so fascinating about your work in prisons, obviously, you've gotten as close to the other side of the line as you possibly can, right? You've, you've and, and I think some of that is probably that inherited guilt in that sense that you are slightly guilty. It's sort of the way, the closest way for you to be inside without really being inside. So I'm just wondering, with this sort of new version, new-ish, slightly slightly harsher version of this Hobbesian version of you. Do you think you end up still teaching in prison? Do you think you end up sort of feeling that sense of that drive to do that? It's weird for me. Um, I think um, prison for me represents so many different things. So it's, it's the place where my dad went that sort of protected me from him. It's the place where I thought I was going to go. Mm. And so there's a kind of, I suppose, what one reviewer of my book said that I seem to be seeking some kind of exposure therapy or something in going into prisons. Yeah, yeah. And that was sort of uh, perhaps uncomfortably uh, astute. <laughs> um, Interesting. Uh, it's also, you know, the place where my brother was and, and where I felt a real sense of grief and loss him being away so and a real sense of his humanity being sort of obscured by that and so I I sort of going into prison for me feels I'm aware that underneath it's driven by some kind of humanitarian impulse to kind of to render the monsters human I suppose it is weird to be in prison and you know I see guys who are just like my dad you know personality wise and now I suppose if I did work in prison in this alternative life, I would see those guys and think, you're just like my dad, but but he got away with it. Mm. Uh, that is what Hobbesian you would think. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, Suckers. Uh, yeah. Uh, maybe. I don't know what that would elicit in me, actually. Whether sort of anger at him for getting away with it. Or just again, a reminder of how, you know, so much of criminal justice is to do with luck, isn't it? In terms of who gets caught and who doesn't, what gets criminalised and what doesn't. You know, we had Michael Gove making drug laws stricter at the same time as doing lines of cocaine in the city. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's sort of cruel how arbitrary that fate is. 
and in fact it's not arbitrary it's often you know because of social injustices and stuff mm. so there, there's a further cruelty in that is there anything that you feel is unanswered that you want us to touch on before we wrap up Oh well, all Except of it. The whole second half of your life. Which all you of it unanswered, <laughs> just because it's all. Uh, I mean, I don't. I don't know what the real answer is to any of the questions you've asked, <laughs> but it's you know it's great for the the moral imagination to to um, entertain you know these different ideas. Cool. And is there anything that you would like to bring over? Yeah. From your own so website? you know, I was I was um, this sort of what ifing. Uh, I was discussing it yesterday with my uh, students in prison. And um, I was telling them about Marcus Aurelius, uh, the Roman emperor, the great Stoic philosopher. And he used to, in his journals, uh, do this meditation, which sometimes gets translated today as um, positive catastrophizing. So you, you, at the end of your day, you think about all the things that could have happened to you that day that didn't. Like bad things or just bad all the things? things yeah. All the bad things. Uh, so catastrophizing normally being negative and about the future, what could happen. This is what could have happened to you. To just, to just meditate in very uh, precise detail, you know, on, on the, the feelings and sensations and situations of something that could have happened today that's terrible but that didn't happen. And, and I, I, I said this to a group of men I was talking to in prison yesterday, and a lot of them really connected with it because they said, you know, when I came here, I thought my life was over. And I thought, uh, you know, there, there's, no, there's no coming back from this. This is just awful. But then, you know, you go out onto the landing and although you're doing five years, there's a guy who's doing 15 years. And before you would have looked at that situation is just totally other to you but that could have been you you know you can imagine yourself into that much more easily now mm. and um you know uh luckily my family is still in touch with me there's lots of people here on the landing whose families have completely disowned them uh or you know luckily i can read and i can pass the time my cellmate doesn't know how to read you know he's going out of his mind here he's, he can't he can't take control of his time here and and so a lot of a lot of prisoners really connected with this idea of positive catastrophizing that it's something you should that comes quite automatically actually in in your survival in strategy in prison but there, but there was a couple of prisoners who said no I definitely don't want to do that if I did that I would just I would just start catastrophizing anyway if I start ruminating on negatives That's and, interesting. and actually there's a there's a real prison is such a cold hard fact it's such an actual reality you just need to deal with it head on and this sort of what ifing in either direction is is too escapist and you you need to deal with it kind of head on and and i i guess i just wondered what you thought about this cuz cuz uh. this this podcast is so much about what happens when we entertain these other possible lives and there were some prisoners who were saying well that's a that's a great idea if you want to find some positivity and some who were saying you don't you definitely don't want to do that don't you know there. that's so interesting um i i think in a way i think this podcast is my attempt to find 
Is this true? I think it's my attempt to find some positivity and some, not just positivity, but some um, real worth in the what if. Um, I think I mentioned when we spoke earlier, I might have done, which is that I am like, generally speaking, I can be quite indecisive. And I think particularly that's my sort of, that's my sort of thing. That's my thing that annoys people. It's my thing that other people find totally endearing. It's the thing that drives me nuts most of all of my magnificent qualities. And for a long time, I saw it only as a negative because it would drive me insane. Um, and I would get really hung up on, on little things. And again, after lots and lots of therapy, I think I came to kind of understand what that was um, and why I would constantly what if. And again, it would be about anything. It would be about something tiny, you know, like what to wear that day. Well, what if I did this? Maybe, you know, my, if I, you know, if I wear the linen shirt, then, you know, I'll, then I'll have to iron it. And then I'll have to, then what will my day be like if that happens, um, you know, to the much larger things. So I think for me, where I am at the moment is that there's a lot of value in a sort of controlled what if experiment because for me what this feels like is essentially I mean when you talk about the sort of cold hard fact of prison you know our kind of cold hard fact of reality is that we are I think sort of finite beings we've got one body we've got essentially one life um you know we have different decisions that we can make but they take us down a path you can then go back and do something differently but fundamentally you, could, you don't get time back right you're only going in one direction in that sense um you probably have a response to that but i don't yeah, i don't whatever um but i think that what this exercise allows you to do and i think what what ifing allows you to do is it allows you to be infinite for a little while you know, you essentially get to expand out into what would have happened if you went down this path or you went down that path. And it allows you, in theory, to grab something from the life that you didn't live and pull it back into your own. Um, so you touch a feeling, say, or you have an experience or you scratch an itch, whatever it is. And sometimes it's really tiny. Sometimes it's bigger. But that's my kind of working theory is that if you and I think because a lot of us, I think, have that sense of you know, this is life. And if I, if I look up, if I look down, if I look to the left or the right, I'll just freak out because it's too much for me. I don't want to think about it. Um, and I think a lot of us do that function that way in life. Once it, once an opportunity is shut or a decision has been made, we don't look back because it's quite hard to look back and it's not productive, right? God forbid we not be productive. But I think, um, I think if you can open out for a little bit and allow yourself to touch whatever that might be, and then close it back down and try to kind of bring in whatever you've learned, then I think that's really positive. So there you go. There's a nice long ramble. So it allows us to be infinite. Yeah, that's my, that's my, that's my working theory. I'll buy that. Amazing. I'll remember that. <laughs> um, I think that's quite a nice place to stop. Thank Brilliant. you so much Fantastic. for being here with me. It's been so, so stimulating. <laughs> Good. Great. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> I began our conversation, I think he and I probably both wondered the obvious. If his father had been around while he was in his teenage years, would his life have changed dramatically? Would he have become, as one of his event attendees asked, a bad boy and ended up in prison? Instead of this, Andy's shift ended up being way less external and instead subtly internal, which frankly, for a philosopher, probably makes sense. I loved the way in which he ended up a sort of churlish Hobbesian, which, let's face it, is probably as close to a life of crime as Andy is going to get. I also loved the way that internal shift also applied to his father. How, by virtue of actually being around, he lost his outsized archetypal status in Andy's mind, 
and just became someone who Andy could see for who he was. What we don't know is how that change would have affected the rest of his life, whether it would give Andy a sense of freedom, doing away perhaps with the executioner he has in his head, or whether having dad around asking to borrow money all the time would have sent him deeper into Hobbesian territory. But I like that we've ended with an open question for Andy. It feels like exactly the place he'd like to be. If you're a fan of My Unlived Life, I'd be so grateful if you'd help spread the word by rating, reviewing, subscribing, or following wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, by sharing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.